We're really glad that you've joined us. We hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And we're so glad that you've joined us today as we conclude our examination into the four faces of Jesus by considering Jesus as the King. When we think about Jesus, what comes to mind? A lot of times people will look at Jesus in, in, in different ways. You, know, you close your eyes, the picture you might have of him is that standard picture of a, a fairly white guy with, with um, brown hair, with a beard, maybe blue eyes. And somebody who is dressed in white or something of that nature. And most of us understand that picture is probably not exactly accurate. That that uh, has been kind of culturally conditioned. And there are many different pictures of Jesus that have been developed throughout time in different times and cultures. And all none of them really are the accurate Jesus. But in a sense, all of them are Jesus because they are the way people have seen him. Our concern in our examination has been less with the physical composite view of Jesus as it is to the, in our mind's eye how we understand who Jesus is and was and what he was about. Because that is the way that we then uh, shape what we consider of him and how we serve him. It's very easy for us to get just like we look at Jesus in one way in terms of his, his appearance, same way in terms of it's very easy to, to look at Jesus and focus on only certain aspects of his character, only certain uh, ideas of what he was about to the neglect of others. And so far we've looked at Jesus as the Son of God, how that was confessed that he is God, uh, fully God in the flesh. And then we saw he was Son of Man, though. That's how he talked of himself, which certainly had reference to the Danielic Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. But it was an indication he is human, and he is as fully human as fully God. And we've also seen him as the prophet. Many times people want to emphasize that Jesus is not just a prophet, and that's true, but his role as a prophet is so important for uh, his purpose in life and and paving the way forward for the people of God. And today, as we talk about Jesus the King, let us consider Luke 19 and verse 38. That in verse 37, as Jesus is going from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And we see this many times in Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, also in Acts 17.7, 1 Timothy 1.17, Revelation 15.3 and 17.14, where Jesus is called a king often the king of the Jews. Here in, in, in Luke 19, he's called that sincerely by his disciples. In Mark 15, for instance, where we see it, uh, him referred to as such, it's mockery, or an ironically, uh, trying to humiliate him and the Jewish people at the same time. But in reality, we look at the number of times he's called king. It's not that many times. There's only about seven times in Matthew seven times in Mark 15, and that only in Mark, four times or five times in Luke, and a few more in John, about 11 times in John, and a few passes here and there. It's not a lot of explicit references to Jesus as king, but when we consider uh, commonly used terminology and what it means, we all of a sudden see a lot more uses. Because a lot of times people think of Jesus, they automatically finish with Jesus Christ. A lot of people think that it's his last name, and Christ is his last name, but it's not a last name. Instead, it, it's a word 
that is a transliteration. Basically, it's a Greek word just kind of put into English letters uh, for Christos, which means anointed. And it comes from a related Hebrew word, Moshiach, which we have Messiah, which is also anointed. And it refers to authority and kingship. Likewise, the word Lord, which is used throughout the New Testament, is the Lord Jesus, or the Lord Jesus Christ, to really emphasize it. Lord was a title normally reserved for Caesar in the Roman Empire, the ruler of the empire. Now, if we were to look at all the passages in the Bible where Jesus is called Lord, Messiah, or Christ, we'd, there'd be hundreds of passages, all kinds of passages. That's the way that a lot of people see Jesus as Jesus the Christ. And we're calling Jesus the Christ, as we're going to see, we're talking about Jesus the King. So what expectations existed regarding this anointed king and expected Messiah of Israel? How did Jesus become this king of the Jews? Why is Jesus declared Lord of all, and why is it a subversive claim to say so? And how is it and why is it that Jesus and only Jesus could have truly fulfilled what has been said about the Messiah? And therefore, how can it be said that Jesus is the king that we should serve? And as we begin our discussion, we again must emphasize, as we emphasize every single time, Jesus lived and died as a first century Palestinian Jew. And we're not going to understand him or what he's doing if we don't understand him in terms of the scriptures of Israel, the Old Testament, and the situation of Israel at his time in what we call Second Temple Judaism. And when we think about these terms, Messiah and Christ, they mean anointed one. Moshiach. Christos, Messiah, Christ, they are the anointed one. That's what it literally means. In Exodus 28, 29, 30, and 40, in Leviticus 8, 12, Moses is commanded to anoint Aaron as high priest with oil, to consecrate him as his, to his position. His sons are also consecrated by being anointed with oil as well. In 1 Samuel 10 and verse 1, Samuel anoints Saul to be uh, king over Israel. In 1 Samuel 16, 12 and 13, the same Samuel would then anoint David to be king after Saul. In 1 Kings chapter 1, Solomon is anointed king to follow David. In 2 Kings 9, 3 through 6, in a very dramatic way, Elisha sends a prophet to anoint Jehu uh, king over Israel. And so when we talk about anointed people in the Old Testament, there is either a royal figure or a priestly figure in mind. In Isaiah 45, verse 1, Cyrus, who is king of Persia, God calls his anointed one because he is supposed to restore Israel to his land and God has put him in his position to do so. In Daniel 9, 25 and 26, in Zechariah 4, 14, there's anointed ones again. Uh, and Zechariah sees two anointed figures, a priest and a king. And that is why, especially uh, those in the Qumran community, uh, in the Community Rule 4Q541, as well as in the uh, Pseudepigraphal Testament of Simeon 7-2, there was the expectation there would be two messiahs. It would be a messiah king and a messiah priest um, that would come for Israel. But in David and the Prophets, most of the time there is discussion of an anointed one. It's centering around this expected king who would come in the line of David. This happens because of 2 Samuel 7, 12-13 and verse 16, where God promises David that there would be uh, his kingdom, the throne of his kingdom would last forever. Psalm 2, as we saw, talked about, in terms of Son of God, it was used to speak about, today, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, the Son of God as the King. In Psalm 110, uh, David speaks of Yahweh speaking to my Lord, to David's Lord, uh, to sit at his right hand, and that he would be priest of the order of Melchizedek, and that he would strike kings. 
In Amos 9, 11-15, the prophet Amos saw the restoration of the tent of David and great prosperity in the land. In Hosea 3, 4, and 5, even though Hosea is speaking primarily to Israel, he sees a day where Israel is going to return to David, a David figure, the Messiah figure, and serve him. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, very famous prophecies where Isaiah sees a shoot from the house of Jesse who would rule on David's throne forever, who would establish justice, peace, and righteousness in the land. Micah 5 and verse 2 uh, envisions him coming from Bethlehem, Hepapha, uh, this from Bethlehem, the city of David. Uh, Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and 37 uh, I echo Isaiah's prediction of a descendant of David on the throne ruling forever. And in Daniel 2, 7, and 9, in dreams and visions, Daniel is told about a kingdom that was coming, where one like a son of man would smash earthly kingdoms to pieces and would rule over an everlasting dominion. In Zechariah 9, 9, 14, 9 through 21, Zechariah sees a king coming on a donkey, and that Israel go up to Jerusalem in prosperity before their king, Yahweh of hosts. So you have all of these and many other predictions of this anointed king. And so by the time of the first century in Israel, most Israelites fervently awaited the coming of this Messiah, this king to fulfill all that had been said of him. And there was general agreement at this time that the Roman Empire was the iron clay mixture at the end of Daniel 2 of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, that it's also the fourth beast of Daniel 7, and therefore the time of the Messiah had drawn near. And they were expecting a very physical, concrete fulfillment of what David the prophets had said. They were expecting the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, to gather his forces, to break the Roman might through the power of God, to reestablish the Davidic monarchy in Jerusalem, and that Israel would maintain international prominence and prosperity as it had in the days of David and Solomon. And so when people went around speaking of the Messiah or the Christ, they were speaking about their king. And we do well every time we see Messiah or Christ to get this idea in mind of this king who was going to come, who would defeat Yahweh's enemies and bring peace and prosperity to the land like it had not seen for a millennium. When we read those Old Testament prophecies, Israel's expectations were understandable if, if we were expecting a physical, concrete fulfillment. Um, but, is that what God was really intending with those predictions? Jesus is born into the house of David, just as had been said. He was born in Bethlehem, as was predicted. But he was born in a stable, in a manger, put in a manger. And he was born to a peasant girl who actually was from Nazareth in Matthew 1, 18-25. When Jesus was born in Luke 1 and 2... The predictions that were made involve him overthrowing the commonly received order, to elevate the humble, to lay low the haughty, and he would be a case of a cause of stumbling for many. Israel wanted to make Jesus king in John 6 and verse 15, and he fled. Throughout his life, he never gathered an army. He never declared Rome, war on the Romans. In fact, in Matthew 22 and in relevant passages, he expected the people to pay taxes to Caesar. He never sat on a throne in Jerusalem. He never defeated the Roman Empire in a military fashion. When he uh, died, Israel had just as little territory as when he had lived. That he did not restore physical kingdom or territories uh, to the Israelites. And this is why, from Jesus' day until now, many in Israel have rejected that Jesus was the Messiah or the King. Uh, to this day, many who claim him as their Messiah, unfortunately, do not understand his, the true nature of his authority and his kingship and what Yahweh has spoken of him and David and the prophets and essentially expect him to correct the mistake of the first time around, the second time around. 
And that is why so many times when Jesus is called the King of the Jews, it's tinged with irony, because it's done in ways that are really attempts to deny the claim or to uh, of the Romans making an example of him. And we can see this in Mark 59, where, Jesus, where Pilate asked the people, Do you want me to release for you the King of the Jews? Uh, in verse 12, What shall I do with the man you call the King of the Jews? In verse 18, when the Roman soldiers are mocking him, they call out, Hail, King of the Jews! And in verse 26, the inscription above his head read, A King of the Jews, that's what he was doing. And um, the way he was mocked by the people, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. In verse 32. And so, how is it that Jesus was made King of the Jews? Well, there's one message that is constant and consistent in Jesus' life. He constantly spoke about a kingdom. Over a hundred times he speaks of a kingdom in the four Gospels. His parables, those famous instruments of his teaching, often describe the way the kingdoms work. How many, how many parables begin? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to, or the kingdom of heaven is like. In Matthew 4, 17, 23, when Matthew kind of provides a summary of the message he was preaching, the gospel of the kingdom is what it was called. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. He does speak in Luke 17, 20, and 21, the kingdom is being in their midst. But most of the time when Jesus is talking about his kingdom, he's looking forward, either in near time, like in Matthew 26, 29, where he says that he will again uh, eat and drink uh, in the kingdom of God. Uh, that basically the next meal he will have after his last supper is in the kingdom of God, which will be in the resurrection, or distant, like in Luke nineteen eleven through twenty seven, when instead he's talking about events that would come to pass in in the future. The parable of the minas, which actually is kind of looking forward to the final day. His powerful acts of healing and casting out demons in Matthew 12, 20-28 are interpreted as the demonstration of God's kingdom coming over the men and the evil one. The idea that Satan is being bound, his house is being pillaged, uh, he has no power in the face of the Christ of God. Not only does he speak of his kingdom, but he's preparing his twelve disciples to proclaim his kingdom by providing them thorough instruction. They see and participate in his ministry. He sends them out on their own to proclaim the gospel in word and power in Matthew 10, for instance, and in Mark chapter 4. And as he goes up to Jerusalem, he prepares the disciples for what will happen. That he is going to be handed over to the religious authorities, that he was going to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. But they do not understand, and they prove unwilling and unable to understand Matthew 16, 21-23, and many other places in the Gospels. And he tries to explain the night before he dies of all the things that are going to happen and why it's necessary for him to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come upon them to remind them what, he, what they heard and to make everything clear. And this is especially made clear in their discourse in John 13 through 16. And so Jesus has been talking about this kingdom, is, let, is setting everything up for the kingdom. He comes into Jerusalem. And it's a great way we saw in Luke 19. Uh, he's entering Jerusalem in triumph yet on a donkey, on a colt. And a week later, he's on a cross, executed, as a blasphemer and insurrectionist against Rome, in Matthew 26 through 27. Now, Jesus was not the first person to claim to be the Messiah and be executed on a Roman cross, and he would also not be the last. 
For the religious authorities, the Israelites and the Romans, this was a sufficient demonstration that Jesus was no Christ at all. This was the way to get rid of messianic movements. You kill the guy they say is the Messiah, and the people disperse. And the disciples were plunged into despair. They they understood what happened in terms of his death, and, and wondered if, in fact, they had been part of yet another failed messianic movement. In Luke 24, 17 through 21, that they had hoped this would be the one to restore and redeem Israel, but that's not what it seemed. But yet in Luke 24 and Acts 1, there's this grand reversal. Sure, Jesus died, but on the third day he was raised from the dead in power, and then four days later ascended into heaven. And that in the resurrection, Jesus himself, and later on after his ascension, the Holy Spirit make it clear that these are the great events that declare and demonstrate that Jesus is the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, the King. In Acts 2 and 3 and Romans 8 and Hebrews 4 and 5, it's made clear that his death was no accident. It was not an oopsie. That in fact it was the foreordained will of God based upon his sinless life that he could gain the victory over sin and death, the willing sacrifice for sin. That in his resurrection, Jesus triumphed over the power of death, over the evil one, and the nationalities and all powers. That he would never die again. John 16, he's overcome the world. Colossians 2, uh, over the powers and also Revelation 1, 18. When he ascended to heaven, as we talked about, when he's as a son of man, uh, he is given the everlasting dominion that he can rule eternally, because he died once, never to die again. And that through his life, death, and resurrection, ascension, he fulfilled the law of Moses and all that is written of him, which allows him to make that new covenant in his blood with all mankind, and he remains mediator and lord of that covenant in Hebrews 7 through 9. Now Israel did not and could not understand how God would provide deliverance through his Christ. And, and this is why Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-15, through that if uh, the authorities had understood this, that they wouldn't have crucified him, that this is a spiritual knowledge made clear only by revelation. That in fact the foe of Israel was not really the Romans, but the forces behind the Romans, the evil one and the forces of evil. And that those forces of evil empowered not only the Romans, but even many in Israel. As Jesus makes clear in John 8, we see also in Ephesians 6.12 and Revelation 13. That Israel had been promised the descendant of David, this Holy One of Israel, but he was also called the Suffering Servant. He was to give an eternal dominion, but there's also this idea of the resurrection of the final day. But they didn't understand the order of how it would take place. And it wasn't an order that would be considered intuitive for most human beings. The idea that it would be the descendant of David, the Holy One of Israel, would then be the suffering servant, then he would be raised from the dead, then given the eternal dominion, and that he would again return and all would be raised from the dead. That is something you can see in the prophets, you can put the prophets together that way, but that's not the way you would automatically do so based upon uh, reading it without understanding the gospel message. So it's all there, it all makes sense, but yet it doesn't make sense at the same time. And that's a great demonstration of this is the power of God. This is not an invention of man. Man wouldn't make this story up the way it is. This is the story and power of God, which is what Paul asserts every time. This is the mystery revealed to the people of God. So thus God made Jesus king of the Jews through the very means that many in Israel thought that would show that he was nothing of the sort, which is the ultimate irony. That all those people mocking Jesus, king of the Jews, because he was dying, well, that's exactly what he was demonstrating through his death and the resurrection which would follow. And this was the world-changing message that Peter and the other disciples began proclaiming on the day of Pentecost. 
that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And many in Israel believed, many disbelieved, but many believed. But Jesus would also reveal to Peter in Acts 10 through 11, 18, that as Lord, he was not just Lord of Israel. He was not just King of the Jews. In fact, he was Lord and King over all. And that all could now participate in his kingdom, both Jews and Gentiles. That this was a major theological shift, that Jew and Gentile could have equal access to God. A Gentile did not have to come Jew first. And that is why there's so much ink spilled on Acts 15, Romans, the first... 11 chapters, uh, almost all of Galatians, from the beginning till 5.15, and Ephesians, the core Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3.13, is all about this subject. But this was part of what had been promised in the prophets, and a major aspect of what God is doing in Christ. That it's not just reconciling Israel to God, but that God, through what he's doing to reconcile Israel to himself, is allowing for all to be reconciled to him. Isaiah 2 and Amos 9 and other passages speak of God in gathering, gathering in the nations. In Galatians 3, that it would be through Abraham's seed, a singular, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and that is Jesus. And that through Jesus' death, he tore down the law that made that distinction between Jew and Gentile, and therefore got rid of the basis of the hostility between Jew and Gentile, allowing both to become one man in him, in Ephesians 2, 11-18. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus overcame sin and death. This is not just a problem for Israel. It's a problem for all mankind. And thus, he is the second Adam, undoing what the first Adam did in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. The apostles and Cornelius and his men speak in tongues, and they proclaim the mighty works of God in tongues, a demonstration in the Spirit undoing what had been done in Babel to confuse the tongues in Genesis 11, Acts 2 and 10. And therefore, in this new covenant inaugurating Jesus' blood, all are brought to God in Christ, not just Israel. And Hebrews 7 through 9, and that is why the idea that Jesus is Lord of all and not just King of Israel resonates with so many in the Gentile world. Now, we are maybe used to the idea of Messiah and Christ because those are terms that are so associated with Jesus. We understand they have Christian uh, overtones. But throughout time, Unless you're well-versed in the Old Testament, those words don't mean a whole lot. Um, we don't have a Messiah or an anointed one or a Christ over us these days. But in ancient Rome, Lord, which is a Greek word, kurios, did resonate. Because that's Caesar's claim over his own empire. So when they went around saying, Jesus is kurios, or Lord, uh, it's some, some way to suggest that Caesar is not. Not that Christians would deny Caesar's authority, that he was given authority. Uh, Peter and Paul both made clear that uh, Caesar should be respected and honored in his office. But Caesar would not brook any competitors. And the idea that, well, Jesus is really Lord and Caesar is, is, is a way to say that Caesar doesn't have all the power Caesar thinks he does. And that is why in Acts 17 and verse 7, um, when the, 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 the Jews in Thessalonica are stirring up trouble, what they do is they bring uh, Jason and some of the Christians to the city authorities saying uh, that those who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so it's a very easy way to speak evil of Christians, that they were saying, that, no, Jesus is king. This uh, dead Jew who was raised again from the dead, not Caesar. And what's fascinating is that even though this would cause so much difficulty for them, 
the apostles and early Christians went around the Mediterranean world making this claim that God made Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ, the King, that all should serve him, because all will stand before him in judgment, in Acts 2.36 and 17.30-31. And that so many were willing to listen. Now all of these aspects of Jesus' kingship and lordship, so that he and only he could have accomplished all that is said of Christ and the prophets. Now Israel, and even many who would claim to be Christians among the dispensational premillennialists, would imagine that Christ will be one day a king sitting in Jerusalem, but Jesus rightly centered his messianic understanding on Daniel, son of man, who received his authority, but in heaven, in Daniel 7, 13-14, Matthew 28, and Acts seven fifty six. Through Israel, God had attempted to provide blessings to the world through one nation-state, through Israel. But not only did the nations not heed them and see that blessing, but Israel itself was not very faithful to the covenant or, or Yahweh's witness as a creator God, and in fact gave the Gentiles more reason to blaspheme than anything else. By defeating sin and death and overcoming the power of the evil one, Jesus is in a position to overcome all of those who are empowered by the evil one. To this day, Christians exist in many nation-states. The mighty pagan Roman Empire was transformed by the witness of those who proclaimed Christ and fell spectacularly before the authority of Jesus the Christ for fulfilling Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 2, as seen in Revelation 12-19 through 19 graphically, and displayed in history as the Roman Empire first persecuted, and yet would then by its end claim as Lord the one whom they had persecuted, Jesus. In the meantime, in the year 70, the Jews attempted to force Yahweh's hand, rebelling against the Romans, and they fulfilled the prophecies of Daniel and Jesus, and the destruction of the temple took place, and the end of the covenant between God and Israel defined in the law of Moses, since it has not been able to be fulfilled since that time. And there's no indication any time in the future that that will change. Only a heavenly kingdom ruled over by a resurrected Lord could exist eternally and draw all people from all nations to God. Draw people, excuse me, from all nations of God. Therefore, only Jesus can be the Messiah promised in the prophets. The one who rules in heaven, Philippians 3, 20-21, and who has transferred us into his kingdom, Colossians 1, verse 13. And thus it is that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Lord, since he ascended in the year 30, to this day, and until when the day in which he returns. Now, Jesus might not have been the Messiah King the Israelites were expecting, but he is the only Messiah King who could have fulfilled all of what had been said about the Messiah. The Messiah is the Son of God. The Messiah is the Danielic Son of Man given authority. Even as a prophet, Jesus spoke of who he was and what would happen because of what he would do. In Matthew 16, 21 and 26. And we again look at Revelation 1, 12-18. As we see in Revelation 1, Jesus appears to John to give the revelation. And he appears as one like a son of man, but described as the Ancient of Days. Uh, with the descriptions given in the Ancient of Days, showing he is the Son of God as God, and the Son of Man as human. And that the whole revelation is really telling what is and what will be. Prophecy. Jesus is prophesying. But what is the message that Jesus is prophesying in Revelation? That Jesus, the Lamb of God, through the power of the Lamb who was slain, made Lord of heaven and earth, will overcome the powers of evil and gain the victory. And that those who trust in the Lamb obtain that victory, which he obtained through his suffering, death, and resurrection. And that is why, as Revelation is coming to a close, in Revelation 22... And in verse 16, 
It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The root and descendant of David. A way of speaking about his lineage of David, therefore that he is the king in the line of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. And he overcomes all who would oppose him. And that is why we need to serve Jesus as King and Lord, knowing, as we see in Philippians 2, that before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his lordship, and that all of us, whether willing or unwilling, will submit to his judgment and power in the end. As it is written in Revelation 22, 12, and 13, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. And our time has come uh, for our ending of our discussion of the four faces of Jesus. And we hope that you've been encouraged by our discussion of Jesus' King and hope that you've been encouraged and built up from discussions of Jesus, the Son of God, Son of Man, the Prophet, which if you have not yet considered, we encourage you to do so. If you have any questions about Jesus, about who He is and how to serve Him, or maybe you'd like to talk about some other biblical subject. Maybe you're just going through some difficulties and need to talk or you have a prayer request. If we can be of any service, please let me know by contacting me through my website at theverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or maybe you want to learn more about the Venice Church of Christ. We encourage you to find us online at venicechurchofchrist.org. We're also on social media on Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Meetup, and Twitter at Venice Church or Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.